Our text this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, and we're in a series, we're coming to the close of a series on the church, and this is a letter written to the church at Ephesus by the Apostle Paul, and in some sense the first three chapters are like a one prayer and he kind of gets distracted it seems like in his prayer and he talks about what he's praying about but his prayer really begins in earnest in chapter 1 verse 15 and we're going to start there and go through verse 23 Ephesians 1:15 For this reason because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all take a moment to reflect on God's Word. It's, it's a worthwhile exercise to trace the places of prayer through the book of Acts. To just read through Acts in sort of a skimming way, but in a way just to pick up where prayer is prominent. Because the book of Acts is the beginning of the early church. And so it tells you how the early church formed. And there's a lot of, there are a number of things that are important about the book of Acts. But one of them is the prominence of prayer. A couple of examples, Acts chapter 2, Peter has given this uh, great first sermon and 3,000 people have responded. And in Acts chapter 2, it ends this way. The church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, bread, and to prayer. So Luke, the writer of Acts, is basically telling you and us, this is more or less the routine of the early church. This is what they did when they got together. They listened to some teaching, they had fellowship, they had the breaking of bread, which is communion, and they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 6, when the church was growing and there was a need for division between what the um, elders were going to do, in this case the apostles, and then what the deacons were going to do, this is what Peter said, we, meaning the apostles, we must give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So for us as the teachers, as the elders, as the apostles, the two things that we have to make sure take front and central place, prominence, is the ministry of the word and prayer. 
in Acts chapter 10, when the church is going to incorporate the Gentiles really for the first time in a really tremendous way, when Peter is going to go to Cornelius, who is the Roman centurion, uh, the way God makes that come together, the way he gets Peter from a rooftop into Cornelius' house is because both men are praying. And through that prayer, he orchestrates this uh, opening into a whole new world that the Jewish mindset really wouldn't have thought of, and that's bringing in Gentiles into the kingdom, which we're all thankful for. In Acts chapter 13, before the first missionary journey, there was a, a group of men that were praying together. And in that prayer, Barnabas and Paul were set aside or called out to begin what was the beginning of mission work that we carry on now 2,000 years later. And that got birthed out of a prayer meeting. And you could go through the book of Acts. You could see many more examples of this. But you get the idea of the prominence. And when you turn now to the uh, letters the Apostle Paul writes to the early churches, you see this same priority come out as he opens each one of his letters. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and the depth of insight. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We always thank God for you mentioning you in our prayers. So Luke, the writer of Acts, he sees the prominence of prayer. He wants to make sure that as the church goes on past Acts chapter 28, they understand that this whole thing got birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the word and prayer. And then Paul, as this first great missionary, he's reminding as he writes these letters to these individual congregations around Asia and and into Greece. He's saying, hey, the most important thing, the first thing out of the gate, what, what I want you to be sure of is I'm praying for you. And so since we're in a series on the church and the importance of the church, the growth of the church, the health of a church, and we see this priority in prayer in the early church, we'd be negligent if we didn't take a sermon to talk about prayer. And I thought the best way to do that would just to be look at one of Paul's prayers for the church. Instead of trying to take a 30,000-foot view of prayer, let's just look at the Apostle Paul and how he prays for one particular church and see what we can gain from that. And we're going to do that by looking at this passage or these few verses in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, Paul had planted this particular church in Ephesus. And you might remember that when he left it, he put Timothy, his protege, there. And so we know more about this church probably than any other church because Paul spent more time in this church maybe than any other church. And if you read through the book of Ephesus, it divides pretty simply into two different parts. And it's equal in both. The first three chapters are about doctrine. So if you go into the book book of Ephesus and you begin... It's all about the doctrine, what, what your beliefs are. And then the second half of the book, chapter 4, 5, and 6, is all about duty. Doctrine and then duty. Or beliefs and then behavior. 
And you can see that transition in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. In other words, I've spent the last three chapters trying to help you understand this doctrine, these beliefs. And now that you have these beliefs, they've, they've, you, you've got them solidly put in your head, then they're going to make you walk in a particular way. And that's what Paul's trying to do in his letter. And he talks about prayer as being one of these prominent forces in the life of a believer. And that's what I want to just examine and see what we can learn together from just these few verses. Verse 15. For this reason. Well, if you're just starting there, then you're going to have to ask yourself what? I mean, for what reason? I mean, you must have been saying something, and, and what, what is it that Paul's been saying? What, he, he's, just about being, he's just about ready to be propelled into prayer, so we're going to ask ourselves, what's propelling Paul into prayer? What's motivating him? What's the foundation that he's standing on as he begins to pray for his people? And the answer to that question is chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 14. Now, it's impossible for us this morning to, to excavate and examine these foundational pillars that Paul is resting his prayer on. But I want us to just listen to some of the phrases and just be amazed. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God predestined us for adoption. In Jesus, we have, the, we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sin. Believing in Christ, we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, now these few verses are some of the richest soil in the New Testament. And, and when you get to verses like this, or maybe in Romans chapter 8 and a, a few other places, when you get to these things, it's like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, but when you, when you arrive and you get to the rim, the first thing you say is you don't say anything. It, it's so massive. It's so much different than the postcard. It's, it's so beautiful. It's, it's terrifying it's in some ways. That when you get there, you don't think, I need a cheeseburger. Or something. I mean, that's not what you think. You're, you're just so overwhelmed with the beauty and the scope of it that when you stand there, when you're, when you're with your friends, you, just, you all just want to be quiet and just look at it and observe before you try to get your hands around it, before you go down into the canyon, the first thing you want to do is just marvel at it. And that's what's happening in these opening verses of, of Ephesians chapter 1. Before you try to get your hand around the fact that God has chosen you prior to the foundations of the earth, before you want to try to get your mind around that, you just want to sit there and go, unbelievable. Because you're not going to get your mind all the way around it. But you can just stand endlessly and say, hey, even though I can't get my mind all the way around it, I can't believe that before time began, God Almighty laid his affections on me. That's incredible. 
And so you just stand and you marvel. And Paul is trying to say to the people at Ephesus, this is the foundation. This, this is the pillar. This is what's going to propel me into prayer. This certainty of God's sovereignty, his absolute control over all things. And notice as Paul opens this letter with these phrases, God's choosing, predestination, redemption, the Holy Spirit sealing. Some might say this heavy emphasis on God's sovereignty kind of leads to a, a frozen chosen kind of idea. I mean, if God's really all about all of these things and it's really happened before the foundation of the earth, then I, then I just feel frozen. Why would I pray? And, of course, there's a big answer to that. But what I want us to notice is that it doesn't freeze Paul. It frees Paul to pray. It doesn't cause him to lock up. It causes him to open up to prayer. He's so certain about who God is and what's God doing. He uses that as fuel to fuel him to pray for his congregation. And so the, the idea that the sovereignty of God somehow shuts you down, is ne- you never find that in the Bible. It's always just the opposite. It opens you up knowing that God, all of his eternal weight is moving with you as you pray with him. So Paul is standing on this unshakable foundation we see in verses 3 through 14. And then he turns his attention to this small, from a worldly point, very powerless relatively insignificant, persecuted, culturally alienated, politically oppressed church. I mean, you you might remember in Ephesus is one of the eighth wonders of the world. There's this great temple to to the goddess Artemis. And around this temple, there's a huge financial district. There's a huge setting of of idol worship. And there's a lot of sexual promiscuity. That's what dominates Ephesus. And probably most people in Ephesus at that point didn't even know that there was a church. Paul had just planted this church. This is not some giant building downtown. It's not a mega church. It's this small group of people. They're relatively insignificant. They don't have any political power. And they're going to be persecuted. And then in verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, meaning weight, the Father of all eternal weight, I'm praying that He may give you... Now, what, what might you fill in right there? A small little band of believers, heavily persecuted, no political power, no worldly power, Culturally, completely dominated by the culture. What might come to your mind the first thing to pray for, for a people like that? That he may give you safety. That he may give you health. That he may give you some change in the political structure. That he may give some reversal of the cultural environment. That he may give you some material possessions, influence. That he may give you some miracle. Those would be things I might first think of. But 
But yet none of those things are a part of Paul's prayer. I don't think it's because those things aren't worth praying about. But, but I do think it's because the spiritual welfare of the congregation dominates Paul's horizon, not the personal welfare of his congregation. So when Paul gets down on his knees and he thinks about his people, these people that he's brought to Christ, that he's formed this church, when he, when he loves these people, the first thing he thinks about doing is praying for their spiritual welfare, not their personal welfare. I think we get a, a taste of this same uh, spiritual priority when we see different places of Jesus with his disciples. And maybe the easiest one to pick out is when Jesus is in the boat asleep when the storm comes up. You remember? He's been teaching. He tells his disciples, hey, let's go to the other side. And they all get in this boat and they get halfway out. Jesus has been tired has been tired because he's been teaching. He falls asleep and somehow he's able to stay asleep during the storm. And all the disciples, who some of them are fishermen, so they're the pros. And they can't get through the storm. They can't get to the other side and they can't get back. And it's gotten so bad that now their personal lives are on the line. They're just about ready to drown. And so they finally go find Jesus and says, Don't you care if we drown? Don't you care about our personal circumstances? This would be the prayer I would have. And what I want Jesus to do is to wake up and say, I totally am into your personal circumstances. I'm so glad you called. But that's not what he does. I don't think it's because Jesus doesn't care about their personal circumstances, but that's not his priority. And you know it's not his priority because he looks at the disciples and what does he say? Where is your health? Where is your material possessions? Where is your political power? Where is your influence? No, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, where is your faith? See, guys, that's the foundation of your life. That's the most important thing. That's the pillar you have to be resting on because one day you are going to go down. And whatever else you might want from this world, it's not going to hold you up. You need the one thing that is going to hold you up, and that's me. And I'm wondering, where is your faith? And Paul is picking up on that, and he's telling his congregation, I know you guys are small. I know you're completely dominated by the culture. You don't have any money. You don't have any political power. You don't have any real influence. And you know what? I'm not primarily concerned about that. I'm primarily concerned what dominates my horizon is your spiritual welfare. That's what's dominating Paul's prayer. So we need to stop and ask ourselves what dominates our prayers for other people. I'm not trying to minimize personal needs. I'm trying to prioritize spiritual needs above personal needs. So when you pray for your family, when you pray for your friend, when you pray for the church, when you pray for the pastor, whoever it is you find yourself praying for, are you dominated by their spiritual needs or are you primarily, because you spend most of your time, dominated by personal needs? God, this is a personal need. I'd like for this to happen. This is a personal need. I'd like for this. To... 
I'm not saying don't pray. I want you to hear me say, I'm not saying don't pray for those things. Welfare, their spiritual health. That dominates because he knows if that's rock solid, then they can live in a culture that they live in. But they could get a lot of things from the culture and their faith could go down the tubes. So that's Paul's priority. Where is your faith? And then he says the same thing. He says, he says it twice. My, my main thrust is that you would know God. Verse 17. I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. That's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that you would actually know God more. Verse 18, in the, in the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened that you may now know God, the hope of his calling. Now, my main thrust is that you would know God. And Paul is just echoing other verses that are in the Bible. Jeremiah nine twenty three. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him boast. Let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. See, I'm not primarily concerned about your wisdom. I'm not primarily concerned about your strength or power. I'm not primarily concerned about your riches. None of those things are worth boasting on because none of those things are going to last forever. There's one pillar that lasts, and that's God, and I want you to know him. Jesus says in John 17, now this is eternal life. Okay. Jesus is just about ready to tell me what eternal life is. So when he says that, everybody's leaning in. What is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this, Once you become aware that the main business you are, in, you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Once you become aware that in the, ma the main business for you here is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Which is essentially what Paul is saying in his prayer. He's expressing the same thought. He, he understands there's all kinds of political, cultural power, materialistic, uh, idle cultures and currents that are moving through here. And he's saying, in the midst of all this, I need somebody who can stand in the midst of all that. And it's going to be somebody who knows God and knows that that's the most important thing, is that they just continue to know who God is. And then we have these three markers, which is what I want to spend the rest of my time thinking about. He lays out these three primary elements in knowing God. And you can see them in your text because they're all marked off by the word what. Knowing what is the hope, number one. Knowing what are the riches, number two. And knowing what is the power. So those are the three things. He wants us to know God, and the way we're going to know God are these three things. He clearly identifies them. I want you to know the hope. 
I want you to know the riches, and I want you to know the power. So let's look at those three things. Number one, I want you to know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now look carefully because this is important. What is our hope in? What does the text say? What is our hope in? Our hope is in his calling. Now, now, first of all, let's just say amen to the fact that our hope isn't in your calling. Amen? Our hope is not in my calling. Your hope does not rest in you calling. Your hope does not rest in me calling for you. Your hope rests in a calling that had its calling before the foundations of the earth. That's where your hope is. I grew up in a church environment where people regularly rededicated their lives to Jesus and occasionally got rebaptized. Now, I don't doubt in any way their sincerity. But the, the effect it had on me, the, the mark it left it on me as a, as a young boy sitting in the pew watching this happen, watching these people come up and say, I'm rededicating my life and I'm getting rebaptized. And maybe this is, it just had the effect on me alone. But the effect it had on me was that my hope rested in my calling out to God, not God calling out to me. That's the effect it had. Okay, so this guy, he was a sinner. He gave his life to Christ and he called out to God. But something happened for the last five years and he went sideways. And so now he's coming back up here to rededicate his life and to get rebaptized because now he's really calling out to God in genuine earnest and this is it. And that left me feeling like I'm on the hook. The hope is in my calling out to God. So I could not tell you how many times I rededicated my life to Christ. I'm in bed. Oh, God. I mean, I didn't have a good day. And I mean, my hope is uncertain now because I called out to you and it didn't seem to stick. So I'm calling out again. There's a great book. It says, quit quit rededicating your life to Jesus. Why? Because the hope is not in your calling. The hope is in his calling to you. And that's what Paul wants to make sure is rock solid in the lives of these believers is that something has happened to them, not because they've done something, but because God has done something. And God didn't just do something to them a day ago or a week ago. He began a good work from before the foundations of the earth and he. at the end of all time and that's a hope you can live on the rest of your days no matter what your cultural environment is no matter how much riches you have no matter how much influence you have that's what Paul's hope is that's what his prayer is I want you to be rock solid I want you to be unshakable in the hope that it's in his calling. So, so whenever you grow fearful, whenever Satan tempts you to despair, you, you return to this soil in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. You, you plant yourself there. You surround yourself with these truths. And you say, no my, no, my hope never rested in me. My hope always rested in God. So now I can move forward. Number two, the first, second thing he wants us to know about God are what are the riches 
of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Again, it's important to look carefully because you could get this turned around. Most of the time when you think about the word inheritance, as a Christian, you're usually thinking about what you inherit when you get to heaven. What is your inheritance? And that's certainly okay because in verse 14 of this chapter, he talks about the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So as Christians, we, we go to heaven, and, and whatever you, you would describe this inheritance as, you get it. You get an inheritance. You're a son or a daughter of God Almighty, and you get this inheritance. So when you think about inheritance, at least for me, that's the first thing I think about is what I get when I get to heaven. But that's not Paul's focus here. That's not his perspective in this verse. So let's look again. What he's hoping for is that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. So Paul's not talking about our inheritance, but God's inheritance. He's not talking about what we get. He's talking about what God gets. And what is it that God gets that's so valuable? You and me. The saints. I mean, it's incredible. It'd be hard to say if it wasn't in the Bible. That God is looking at us and saying, you're my treasure. I can't wait to get you. And we know that from not only here, but other places. Deuteronomy 14 you are the children of the Lord. You are a holy people to the Lord, your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. So, so what Paul is trying to put in this bedrock that's never going to move for these people in Ephesus is that Paul is trying to help them understand this incredible passion God has for his people. He doesn't ever want them to lose sight of his, of God's passion for his people, that he sees them as a treasure. Now, let, let me see if I can describe it maybe this way with some modesty. Looking at your lover can be very motivating. I want you. And when you look at your lover and you say, I want you, you're very motivated. You're moving towards a goal. You're doing whatever it takes to get to that particular point, that particular person. But, but it's equally as motivating and maybe even more motivating when your lover looks back and says, no, I want you. When you're coming towards a person that you want and you find out they want you back, whoa, you're faster than a speeding bullet. You're more powerful than a locomotive. You can jump a tall building in a single bound. You've, I hope you felt this. If you're old enough, you should have felt this at some point. As you come towards somebody and you find out they're coming towards you, whoa, Incredible. You feel like you could do anything. And that's exactly what Paul wants them to understand. God Almighty 
is coming for you. Whatever passion you have, it's going to be bowled over by the passion that's coming for you. And you know that from the prodigal son, do you not? The father's looking, and as soon as he sees the son who's sort of basically meandering back, he bowls him over. Forget your all excuses. Get the robe. Get the ring. Kill the fatted calf. I'm coming for you. And when you find out that God Almighty loves you, and he's coming for you like a lover, then you feel like you can... And he's trying, Paul's trying to plant the people's feet in this pillar that will never move. What a prayer. That you would know God. And part of that knowing is that he's crazy about you and he's coming for you like a lover would. And his love more than matches your love coming towards him. The third thing that Paul wants them to know. The immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. As I said, Ephesus was a city of great superstition and idol worship, and they believed that there were all kinds of powers intersecting their lives. So they had all kinds of superstitious rituals and idols that they would have in their homes to sort of ward off or counteract the powers that might be over their fertility, over their finances, over their homes, over their children. And so when Paul says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in this culture, boy, they're paying attention. Because they know there's some power. And they would like to know what's the immeasurable greatness of some other power that's going to overcome all these other powers. And, of course, Paul points his congregation back to the cross and the power of the resurrection, verses 20 through 23. The power that is above all earthly power is this power. And so Paul is telling his church, the believers that are there, he's saying, I don't want you to forget the gospel. I don't want you to forget this power, this mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. And now God has put him in the heavenly places right next to God Almighty. I don't want you to forget that particular power. And, of course, these verses, again, are like a a rich field that, like, there's diamonds all over the place. And as soon as you pick one up, you realize there's a bigger diamond underneath. And when you pick up that bigger diamond, there's a bigger diamond underneath. We couldn't possibly get to the end of these verses. But my question, just to close this up, is to ask, that I wanted to ask myself is, why is it Paul wants to remind his people of this power right now in their lives? He's saying to this powerless group of people, I want you to remember this power, the power that raises people from the dead, that brings them into the presence of God forever, that is above every power in this age and the age to come. Why is he, ask, why is he saying that right now? And I can't be sure. But I think it's because this little band of people in Ephesus called the church was so dwarfed by the culture, so filled with troubles, so surrounded by idolatry, 
so overcome by the political powers and the Roman way of living and their culture and their politics. And everything just was, you can imagine, just so far beyond their ability to control or their ability to do anything about it. I mean, these people didn't have a vote. Many of these people were going to be harmed. Some of them were going to be put to death. This little band of people in Ephesus were not going to experience their best life right now. So Paul has to give them something that they can hold on to that will be forever. That even if you die, God is more powerful than that power. And that he can raise you from the dead and he can once and for all and forever put you at his right hand side. I think that's why Paul is trying to remind them of this particular truth. It's not going to work out well for most of you all. You're in a system, you're in a culture that's just going to be oppressive. And and it's going to get more oppressive from the year 60 or 70 A.D. from which this was written through the next several generations. And I need you to know as a church, I need you to know God. And I need you to know that when all the, all the lights seem to go out, He is above all that power. And even as you're walking into the Colosseum for your faith and you're being put to death, I want you to know God is on the throne, God is in control, and even if you die and when you die, He can raise you from the dead and bring you to His right-hand side. That's what I want you to know. And that's Paul's prayer. That's a great model for prayer. And it's worth, again, just asking the question, what dominates our prayer life? When you're praying for somebody, is this, is this the soil that informs your prayer? If it's not, then let's just start here as using this as a, a template for your prayers for your son or daughter. Gosh, if you have a teenage daughter, mine's 20, so she's not a teenager anymore. I, when she would go out, when she does go out, I pray for her safety all the time. And I'm not going to stop praying for her safety all the time. But more powerful than that is if I prayed for her to know the love of God, that she is a treasured possession. Because then if she knows that, when she gets out in the world and all these competitors come, she already knows she's eternally loved. And that at least creates a barrier between her and loving the things of the world. That's a more powerful prayer than just safety. Than just health. Let's pray together. Lord, you uh, had the Apostle Paul write these words for his congregation at Ephesus, knowing that in December the 1st in Wilmington, North Carolina, 
another Paul would preach this word to his congregation. And so it's a divine appointment that this text was chosen for this day for these people. And I don't know the personal circumstances that they come in holding. But I know they need to know you. They they need to be rock solid. And that's my prayer, that they would be rock solid on your calling them. Whenever they feel tempted to despair, whenever they feel fearful, whenever their knees of salvation begin to knock together, I pray that they would know their hope doesn't rest on how they've earnestly called out to you. It matters that you have eternally called out to them. That's my prayer for these people. That they would know that they are a great treasure in your eyes. And that you are you are forcefully making your way towards us, even as we make our way towards you. And that we would remember the gospel. Whatever situation we may face, even death itself, is not a power bigger than your power. And so as we leave and we filter out into our own culture full of dysfunction, we go with great hope, great courage, great strength. We stand on the shoulders of this small congregation in Ephesus and we want to be faithful to to go out and not go out in despair, but go out in hope of what you've done and that you are in control and you are bringing all things together for good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.